Today we're going to read a portion of scripture that contains an event in the history of the world of supreme importance. An event where the God-man, while on the cross, offered a perfect, once and for all, sacrifice. Where he became the propitiation of the wrath of God and an atonement for the sins of his people. Martin Luther once wrote, Christ took our sins and the sins of the whole world as well as the Father's wrath on his shoulders. And he has drowned them both in himself, so that we are thereby reconciled to God and become completely righteous. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter seven or 27. The title of my message today is Calvary, God's Wrath Displayed. Matthew chapter 27, let's go ahead and begin in verse 45. Matthew writes, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemesebechthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly This was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Let's pray. Father, 
thank you that you are kind. Thank you that in your kindness, you sent your son to redeem sinful humanity. Thank you that in your love toward us, you inflicted your fury on him, the innocent one, your own son, Jesus, to die a death that we all in this room deserve. May we never forget the sacrifice of Jesus, but always treasure him, the one who laid his life down, suffered, and died so that we would not have to. In your name we pray. Amen. God's wrath displayed. The first point today is death of the deliverer. Death of the deliverer. Matthew writes in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So from noon to 3 p.m., there was darkness, complete, utter darkness. It wasn't just overcast or cloudy, but it was pitch black, dark as night. It was at this time that God the Father imputed the sins of his people to his son. And the sight of Jesus bearing all of these iniquities was disgusting, so vile, so repugnant to the nostrils of the father that he turned away from his son. In order for Jesus to pay for the sin of his people, he had to be cursed. And to be cursed meant they had to be sent into the darkness, the darkness outside the camp, outside the holy city. And this darkness was a sign of divine judgment on the sin Jesus was carrying. For God is holy and can't look at sin. The one who came into the world, the light of the world, was now in darkness. And in verse 46, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Sebekthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the only words that come from Jesus' mouth that Matthew records. Just out of breath. His life is about to be ended. Death is at his doorstep. And after enduring such pain and suffering, one might expect that his last words would be a whisper. But Matthew says that he cries out with a loud voice, a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic. He cries out for everyone to hear, My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he say this? Because he was forsaken. Being forsaken by his disciples was one thing, but being forsaken by God, your father, after spending eternity past in sweet fellowship in heaven with him, And now a severing, a cutting? His heavenly father must forsake him? Because he must forsake sin? 
if he had not forsaken Jesus, he would have to forsake every single human being who is not covered by the blood of Christ forever. And distressed, Jesus is now receiving the wages due his people for the wages of sin is death. Exile from the presence of the Father. For three hours, he's being penalized, cut off, so that we could have access So that we can enter in. And it is only by his forsakenness. That we can be adopted. As sons and daughters. Of a holy God. Matthew records in verse 47. 49. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Some of the mockers maybe thought Jesus was calling Elijah to help him. And they mocked him. And when that happened, Matthew writes, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Perhaps some of the mockers' hearts felt some sort of compassion. And one of them quickly went to relieve Jesus of his pain and suffering, while others protested this and continued mocking the Messiah to see if Elijah would actually come and rescue him. And while they're waiting, verse 50 states, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew doesn't record what Jesus says at this point, but Luke does. And Luke records in Luke chapter 23, 46, that Jesus, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit just before he dies. And John records in John chapter 19, verse 30, that Jesus says, it is finished. What is finished? The forsakenness. If the time of being forsaken had not been completed, it would have been a complete waste of time for Jesus to commit his spirit to the Father. However, at this point, he knew he could. What was finished? The fulfillment of all the prophecies ever spoken or written about his death. Centuries beforehand, God's prophets had described step by step the humiliation that the Savior would endure. To the last letter, these words from God are now finished, completed, fulfilled. Jesus cried, it is finished. All of his sufferings were complete. The suffering servant who suffered at the hands of man, who suffered God inflicting him, never again was he to suffer pain. Never again was he to be the target of the wrath of God. Never again would God the Father's face be turned away from him. It is 
finished, he cried. The goal of the incarnation has been reached. His mission was complete. Everything that the Godhead had planned before Eden had come to pass. Jesus coming to earth, leaving heaven behind. His living among sinful mankind for 33 years on earth. It is finished. Charles Spurgeon once said, When his hands are pierced, when he is parched with fever, his tongue dried up like a shard of pottery, when his whole body is dissolved into the dust of death, you never hear a groan or a shriek that looks like Jesus is going back on his commitment. When Jesus cried, it is finished. He was putting an end to sin once and for all. All the sins of believers in Christ were transferred on him. The great exchange has happened for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All condemnation was removed from those who have repented of their sins and entrusted their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The penalty of our sin was transferred to the Lamb of God. As Peter wrote, Christ bore our sins in his body on a tree. As one theologian once said, The cross of Christ is the grave of our sins. This is good news for you, believer, for me. We can rejoice today. The atonement was final. At that moment, Jesus had done the work the Father had sent him to do. He did all the work to pardon us. We didn't have to do it. The work of redemption was complete. Our debt was paid in full on Calvary. And now he would entrust himself to the Father and wait for the resurrection. Thank you, Jesus. And at the time of Jesus' death, Matthew records three supernatural manifestations that take place. First, the curtain was torn in two. Matthew writes in the first part of verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain was heavy and thick, and it hung in the temple, and it formed the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place in all of Judaism. And originally, the Ark of the Covenant had been kept in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in Solomon's temple, but it was lost around the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. And now only the priest could enter the Holy of Holies and then only once each year on the day of atonement. And after several acts of purification, he would take the blood of the offered sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and he'd he'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat 
the lid of the ark, which was regarded as the throne of God. And this ritual continued every year from the exodus out of Egypt for about 1,500 years. But this could not take sin away. We read in Hebrews 10.4, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This ritual was implemented by God to foreshadow the coming of the one who would offer himself as a perfect sacrifice once and for all, giving his people access to the presence of Almighty God. After sin had entered the world through Adam, it became a barrier that blocked our direct access to God. And that barrier was symbolized by this massive curtain that blocked off the throne room of a holy God. Finally, just at the right time, all of those symbolic sacrifices, that which was symbolized, took place on the cross. Jesus. The Lamb of God was offered up once and for all as an atonement for the sins of his people. Charles Spurgeon said throughout the Old Testament, this was always the idea of a sin offering, that a perfect victim without offense on its own account, taking the place of the offender, the transference of the offender's sin to that victim and that expiation in that person of the victim for the sin done by another. Immediately upon his death, God caused the curtain in the temple that separated people from his presence to be ripped into, torn from top to bottom, which indicated at that moment God's divine action, his divine intervention. This was a symbolic statement that the barrier was now removed between you and God, between me and God. And so when we come here on Sunday mornings, believers, we're gathering together in the presence of Almighty God. We not only enjoy corporate fellowship in worshiping God together, but personal fellowship with him every day because Jesus ended the separation by sacrificing himself. And now as Christians, we can draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace and help to help us in our time of need. What a God! What a Savior! What a Deliverer! We are here because of Jesus. We love each other because of Jesus. We have fellowship with each other because of Jesus. Outside of Christ, we would hate each other. Outside of Christ, we'd be dead in our trespasses and sins without God and without hope in the world. The next manifestation to occur was an earthquake. Verse 51b, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So just as darkness had fallen over the land as Jesus hung on that cross, at his death, another supernatural occurrence takes place, an earthquake. 
And the timing of this rock-splitting earthquake reveals that it also was a supernatural event. You imagine the earth shaking and rocks and boulders falling at that moment when Jesus died. The final manifestation that we see are tombs being opened. Let's read verses 52 and 53. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Matthew is the only gospel writer to give this account. This is a phenomenal manifestation that takes place. Now, historically speaking, Jews did not bury their dead in the ground, but in tombs similar to the one that Jesus was laid in. And the tombs were usually hollowed out spaces and rocks. And perhaps as a result of the earthquake, the tombs were broken open, exposing bodies inside. But not only were there these tombs being opened on the day of Christ's death, but on the third day, also with Christ's resurrection from the dead, several of those bodies of men and women who loved God were raised from the dead and went into Jerusalem and were seen by many people. That's pretty amazing. Pretty astounding. Why? Why did this happen? First Corinthians fifteen twenty six states the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Second Timothy one ten says, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Hebrews two fourteen says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power, the power of death, that is the devil. One of the dimensions of the atoning death of Christ was his conquest over the last enemy, death itself. In his death, Jesus removed the sting from the grave so that death now is not punishment for sin. The gospel message is this. Jesus Christ died a sinner's death, though he himself was sinless. He rose on the third day and has conquered the enemy of death so that now our deaths are mere transitions. Our spirits, if we are Christians, immediately go into the presence of Christ. To be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord for the Christian. So what we see by this account is the promise that in the death and resurrection of Christ, death is defeated. The graves are now open and people come alive. Death cannot keep them. And these are ones who love, not everybody. This didn't happen to everybody. It says the saints. Those who loved God. Even death couldn't keep. In that moment. And look at the response from the Roman centurion in verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, 
This was the son of God. The centurion and the Roman soldiers who had carried out the execution of Christ noticed what happened. They, along with the passerbys, the religious elite and the thieves, had mocked Christ and were a part of his murder. For them, however, it was just probably another day, another day of death by execution until this very moment. As the curtain was split, the earth was shaken, the graves were opened, the centurion and his men became terrified. Never in their time as executioners had they ever witnessed something like this before. And the profession was profound. Truly, this was the Son of God. Pagans, Gentiles, proclaiming the truth, professing Christ. You know, I'm sure the centurion was a very hardened man. He had been involved in who knows how many brutal executions under the Roman regime. He'd seen a lot of destruction and death. But the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. And we all know people in our own personal lives, family, associates, co-workers, in the culture, and our first inclination could possibly, that person is so mean and so hardened, so rough, such a God-hater. And we don't think about praying for that person. Our minds automatically go to thinking that they're just so bad that why even bother praying for them or even bother proclaiming the gospel to them? Well, if God could soften the heart of a brutal soldier in the Roman Empire, Surely he can do the same to whoever it is in your life who is really hard and rough around the edges, so to speak. Because he's God. And think about how you were before you were saved. (laughs) And if he could save you, he can save that person too. And he's given you the gospel to share with that person. You know, I've shared this before, but I've got a prayer list of people, famous people, that I pray for, and I pray for their salvation. It's very sad when one dies and I have to cross them off. They don't, you know, I hear they don't repent before they get saved, but I've been praying for 20 years for their salvation. And one of them is Charles Manson, a cult leader, a mass murderer, who himself said he was God, an antichrist. And I just pray, Lord, your arm is not too short to save Charles Manson. Please save him. You know, we need to pray for people and ask God to save them. When was the last time you prayed for Madonna? You know, pray for her. Taylor Swift, she's from our area, by the way. Pray for her and her salvation. But hope in God. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes. Everyone who believes. God could save whoever he chooses to save. And so this Roman 
soldier makes a profession of faith about the character and the nature of Jesus. And he says, this was the son of God. Jesus didn't come just for the Jew, but for the Gentile too. And there are others who also witnessed these manifestations in verses 55 and 56. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. These faithful ladies also were present to see these manifestations take place. So we have eyewitness account to all these things. And so you could definitely say it was definitely a day that was not ordinary for a crucifixion. But God himself is not ordinary. Point number two, Emmanuel's exaltation. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Jesus ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body, and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. If we were to look at the life of Christ, we see a general progression from exaltation to humiliation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John writes in his Gospel. John 1.1. 1, 1. So Jesus was always with the Father. He's the second person of the Trinity. Then he descends from heaven to dwell among us, takes on the form of a servant, endures shame, suffering, wrath at the cross. But then his exaltation begins again, or comes again, and we see the beginning, I believe, at his burial. Jesus' burial was foretold in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 through 9. Isaiah prophesied, and he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he Open not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah is declaring in this prophecy the fact that Jesus' grave would be with the rich when he would be, <clears throat> which would be an indication of his vindication. This was an honor given him because he had done no evil. According to history, any criminal who is executed is given a criminal's burial. Roman history records that if you were crucified, your body would be taken down from the cross and thrown into the city's garbage dump. 
that would be the last act of disgrace given the criminal by Rome. However, Jesus' body was not treated that way. He was buried with the rich. This tomb was owned by Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very rich, prominent member of the Sanhedrin, some say. He was also a disciple of Jesus, but was a in-the-closet Christian because he feared the other Jewish leaders. Because he was a wealthy man, he had access to Roman authorities, and he used his prominence to get to Pilate and to request Jesus' body. Then, according to John's account, Joseph wraps Jesus' body in a clean linen sheet and lays it in his own tomb in a nearby garden. And the two Marys are witnesses to the burial, having followed the body from the execution site to the tomb. And Matthew tells us of another significant event that occurs in verses 62 through 66. He says, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said that while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, in order the tomb order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and set a guard. The religious elite wanted to be sure that none of the disciples would be able to any time to claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. They understood that Jesus said he would return to life in three days, so they thought that if they could keep the body locked away in the tomb, they would be able to refute any claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so they conspire, as is their custom, to ask Pilate to station Roman guards at the tomb until the third day passed. And with Pilate's permission, Roman guards inspected the stone, sealed it so it could not be opened, and set a guard to keep watch. But we'll see next week. They were dealing with a power that is non-containable. Man cannot, no way, no how, thwart what God has purposed. crucified Savior, given a rich man's burial, honoring him. Dying a horrible death, absorbing the wrath that we deserve. Living 33 years, fellowshipping with people, whom were created in his likeness and image. But because of sin, have become alienated from him. Born of a virgin, came down from heaven to dwell among us. Lived 
in heaven prior to his ascension to earth or descension to earth in fellowship with the Godhead, the Father and the Spirit. And before Eden was part of the covenant that they made that he would suffer and die in my place for an unworthy sinner, for a mocker, for a God-hater. For one who is hostile to God, at enmity with God. Tom, if you would come up with the worship team. I'll close with a few thoughts here. This passage is about Calvary displaying Jesus' love for us and God displaying his wrath and pouring it out on his beloved son. This passage is about Christ's penal substitution, his death in our place. It's about him conquering death and sin once and for all it is finished. The cross is the only hope for eternal life. When one's sins are carried away by Christ's atoning death, wrath has been appeased for the believer in Jesus. You are delivered from the death and condemnation that Jesus endured on your behalf. And now, Christian, you have been saved from wrath. You have access to God and are a part of his family. A privilege that you can claim, not by your own merit, but because of Jesus. However, if you are not a Christian, if you have never turned from your sin and entrusted your life to Jesus, the risen Messiah. The scripture states in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God abides upon you right meaning right now, meaning that His wrath is both a present and a future reality for you. If you die unrepented, you would spend an eternity separated from a holy God, an eternity Filled with agony, filled with pain, filled with torment, filled with a gnashing of teeth. Sinner, won't you please turn to God and have your sins wiped out? And then you'll feel the refreshing. That only comes from the Holy Spirit.
Father, blood was shed in such a gruesome way. Christ was brutalized, tortured, mocked, scorned, hated, and rejected. He was rejected by the Jew. He was rejected by the Gentile. He was rejected by you. The Jew and the Gentile rejected his Messiahship, his Lordship. You rejected him because of the sin that he carried upon himself. The sin bearer was cast into darkness as he hung on that cross, separated from you. Taken on the might of your fury, your wrath, so that your undeserving people can be reconciled to you. You displayed your wrath on Calvary in your son. And your son absorbed the wrath that we deserve on Calvary. And we say thank you. Thank you, Father, for punishing your son. Thank you, Jesus, for taking on our punishment. We don't deserve anything. Thank you for redeeming us from the curse of sin and death by becoming the curse of sin.